Would you pray with me this morning? Father, our prayers, we approach your word this morning, is that you would give us that peace that you promise, that you would calm our hearts and our minds, help us to rest and rest in you, help us to find the anchor for our soul that you are. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the worst job you've ever worked? Uh, For me, it's easy. I've worked a couple different factory jobs. They were boring, but they weren't nearly the worst job. The worst job I ever had was telemarketing for MCI back in the day. Yes, I was one of those people. I nothing wrong with selling. I don't mind sales, but calling people in their home, disturbing their dinner, and telling them that they need to switch to MCI. I hated that. Y'all were so rude, but (laughs) what I learned doing that telemarketing is that I had about 30 seconds. From the time the person picked up the phone, I had about 30 seconds to convince them that they needed to listen to what I had to say. Sometimes it was absolutely impossible. You know, you'd talk to some little old lady who'd never left the holler. She never made a long-distance call because she didn't know anyone outside a five-mile radius. She did not need to listen to what I had to say. Other times, it was really easy. Maybe someone had just gotten their bill from AT&T, and they were mad. They had been charged twice as much as they thought they should. So they were ready to hear. You know, sermon introductions are a little bit like that. I got a few brief moments to capture your attention And to convince you that you need to hear what I have to say for the next 20 minutes or so. Sometimes it's challenging. This morning, I think it's easy. Because I'm speaking about peace. I think we all know we need peace. We want peace. But how? The headlines this week were filled with anything but peace, right? Rising tensions with Russia, uh, the horrors of the civil war in Syria. And it's not just stuff out there that makes us long for peace, it's the anxiety that we carry with us. Uh, Our homes, we want them to be havens, safe harbors of peace, and so often they're not. So I think. I don't have to work hard to convince you. That's the easy part. We want peace. But peace itself, that's the challenge. Peace eludes us. We want it, we strive for it, and it's evasive. So how? How do we go about pursuing peace? This morning, the sermon kind of breaks down into two main parts. First, I want to talk about the foundations that God has established for us to experience his peace. And then the second part is how do we fight for that peace? What are some strategies for for pursuing that peace, the peace that God offers in our life? But first things first, the foundations for peace. What has God done to establish peace? And there's three of them. 
three things that come out of that Luke text that the Varellos read for us this morning. Three things that are always objectively true, whether or not I feel them or I feel at peace or not. The first foundation for peace is that God is on high. God is in heaven. The angels sang glory to God in the highest heaven. I think sometimes we, we think of heaven and almost equate it with, you know, a Camp David. Camp David's where the president goes to kind of get away from the stress and the tension and the, the overwhelming job he has. And sometimes we think heaven's kind of like that. It's where God goes to get away from the cares of the world. Kick his feet up on the porch and drink some iced tea. Play a round of golf. Heaven's not like Camp David. Heaven's more like the Oval Office and the War Room, kind of all rolled into one. Heaven is where God is on his throne, reigning, ruling over all parts of his creation. And I got some good news this morning. God is on his throne, and he's doing just fine. He's not stressed, he's not anxious, he's not confused. He's not worn out from a hard day's work. He's reigning. Purposefully reigning. He's doing just fine. This week, in some far part of the universe that scientists haven't even seen yet, a star was born. And the math and the physics of all that is just mind-blowing. But God was governing superintending that, so it happened just as it needed to. In another part of the galaxy, a black hole swallowed a solar system, and God was there, governing, superintending, so that it happened just as it needed to. Uh, Again, the math of those kind of things, uh, the physics of it is just mind-boggling, but for God, it's, it's easy, not hard. And here, just in the woods around Bloomington, a mother robin was feeding her young chick. Is that what you call a baby robin? And God was there, overseeing it, superintending it, providentially caring for it from his throne in heaven. And it's not just things in the far-flung parts of the galaxy or out in the woods. It's in my living room, too, in the conversations I had. God was there. That's part of his sovereign administration. And in the boardroom, where decisions about careers are made. And in doctor's offices, where diagnoses are handed down. God is on his throne, and he's sovereign over all of those aspects of our universe, of nature, of our lives. He's on high, and he's doing just fine. Despite what's going on on the world stage, despite what's going on in my own heart, in my life, God is reigning. That does not mean we're exempt from difficulties, from struggle, from grief, from suffering evil. But it does mean 
that in the midst of all of those, we have a foundation for peace. That God is reigning. And he's working all things according to his purposes. He's working them all according and to his people's eternal good. We can find peace in that. That's good. God is reigning. He's on high. Glory to God in the highest. But it gets even better. The second foundation for peace that I see in this text is that God's basic stance towards humanity is one of goodwill. I'm borrowing that phrase from the King James Version of this verse. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. The NIV renders it slightly differently. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those upon whom his favor rests. I like both. The King James because it's very poetic. It it comes to mind because that's the way I memorized it. And it connects with the carols that we sing. But I got to be honest, I love the NIV on this. Partly because it's more accurate, and I like accuracy. But I love that word, favor. On whom his favor rests. It is a uniquely Christian word. The, the Greek word behind that is eudokia. It's a word that does not appear in classical Greek anywhere, only in the Bible. It shows up first in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, where it's used almost exclusively of God's favor, his delight, his pleasure, his grace. In modern Greek, that word eudokia, it's a girl's name, which means basically beloved. That's cool. Peace on earth to those whom God calls beloved. God's stance towards us is one of pleasure, of goodwill, of favor. How different is that from other concepts of God, pagan concepts of God, or or modern kind of deistic concepts of God. In the pagan world, the ancient gods, Zeus, Hermes, you teenagers know more about Greek mythology than I do now because of, what's that, Percy Jackson. But the basic stance of the Greek gods, the Roman gods, was not a favor. It was ill will. Mankind was maybe useful because they would serve the gods and provide things that the gods needed. Maybe they were toys to be manipulated and played with for the good humor of the gods. But our God, he's pleased. He shows his favor towards us. So different. And so different than the modern kind of concept of God where he got things started, he created, he wound it up, and then he stands back in a disinterested kind of way. No, God is interested. He wants to show his favor towards us. And what a source of peace that can be. The passage in the NIV, which I think, again, renders it correctly, is peace, upon, peace to those upon whom his favor rests. And there is 
a kind of narrowness to that. It's not everyone who will experience that peace, but those upon whom his favor rests, his beloved. But you have to balance that with the wideness of this text, too. Because the good news that comes isn't just for those in Israel. It's for all peoples. Not just Israelites, but Greeks and Romans and Americans. And not just the religious elite, not just the prosperous, not just those who can manipulate the system so that they can live in peace and comfort. It's for all peoples, including shepherds. Shepherds were a despised class of people. They lived off in the hills as loners. What they did up in those hills, no one knows. But they kind of had some liberties that they would take as they wandered through a part of town or a village or the countryside. If they saw it, eh, we can take it. They were so distrusted and despised that the shepherd's testimony would not stand up in court. They weren't allowed to testify. But God shows up to them and says, goodwill, good news. Now, if you're a skeptic like I am, like most everyone in our church is, right? You're thinking, okay, God's sovereign, he's gracious, he has goodwill. How does that jive with what we see in the world, with what we experience? Well, God's goodwill, his favor is only part of the Bible story. What we see in the world flows out of the whole Bible story. God created and showed amazing favor to our first parents. He gave them a noble task to be co-regents with him in governing his world. He brought them into deep, intimate fellowship with himself. He showed them favor by placing them in a paradise where all their needs would be met. But for our first parents, experiencing God's favor wasn't enough. They wanted to be like God. So despising his good favor, they rebelled against him and plunged themselves and all of their progeny, that's us, into rebellion against God. But still... God's favor persisted. He now shows us unmerited favor, which is the definition of grace. And he's working to reestablish the peace that he wanted for us. Which brings us to our third foundation for peace. Into this world of sin and violence to a people who had already spurned his good favor. From the highest of heaven, God sends a Savior. The anointed one, Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. He sends a Savior. There's so many ironies wrapped up in, in this wonderful text. 
He sends a Savior and he announces peace. Who announces this peace? The angels. The host of heaven. That word is a military word. God sends a battalion of angels. An army of angels to announce peace. To announce another irony that a king is born in a stable. To announce maybe the greatest irony of all that God has become a helpless infant. That a savior was being born to die. That's a high irony. Maybe we don't realize that because we're so used to hearing Jesus is the Savior who died on the cross. Saviors aren't supposed to die. Saviors are supposed to be victorious, triumphant, lead great battles, overthrow governments, end oppression. But Jesus is the Savior sent from heaven who would die. Christmas, we celebrate the mystery, the miracle of the incarnation, of God coming in the flesh. But behind the celebration of that miracle, there's that question that lurks. Why? Why was God in the flesh necessary? Why the God-man? Curdeus homo. Why did God become man? And the answer, at least in part, is so that he could die. That's only part of the answer. It's also so that he could do everything that Adam left undone, so that he could bring mankind into union with God, so that he could show us what humanity was supposed to All those are parts of the answer. But at the core, the miracle of the incarnation was so that Christ, the God-man, could die on our behalf. Paul writes in Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There is a direct line from the incarnation and Christmas to Good Friday. Christ was born so that he could die and make peace. The foundations of our peace. God is on high reigning. God expresses his goodwill and grace towards mankind. And that culminates in the giving of a Savior, Christ our Lord. Those are objectively true whether or not we feel them to be true. Whether or not we feel their impact or not. But I want to feel it. I want to feel the weight of these truths. I want to subjectively experience the peace of Christ in my life. But I have to admit, I struggle to experience it. I struggle to feel it. Lynn laughs all the time and gets slightly annoyed because people think I'm really laid back. And I go with the flow. 
And she knows the other side of me. I'm much more anxious. I'm wound up tight. I like things my way. More so now than when I was 20 or 30. I don't know what that's about. I have to struggle and fight to find peace. I'm anxious. I worry. There's turmoil that goes on that I don't even know how to identify and express sometimes. And I long to experience peace. So how? How can I step into this battle, this war for peace? How can we struggle to find it together? Three, I was about to say simple strategies. They're not simple, right? But three strategies to experience this peace. First, we, I, need to strive for order because disorder and peace do not coexist well. As I was reading passages in the New Testament about peace this week, I came across again 1 Corinthians 14.33. Paul says, God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Peace is one of God's attributes. But Paul's saying peace and disorder, they, they don't live well together. God's not a peace of, uh, God is not a God of disorder because he is a God of peace. You see that as you rewind the story all the way back to Genesis 1 and creation. God created and the earth was formless and without void. In other words, there was no order to it, but God steps in and creates order. He turns chaos into dry land into the separation of the firmament above and the earth below. He separates night and day. He orders things, and then he creates man and gives us the task of partnering with him and exercising dominion in ruling, in establishing order, in creating order in his world. It's a part of God's image in us. We need order for peace to thrive. When my life feels in disorder, I have a tough time feeling at peace. This can get real nitty-gritty kind of practical stuff. Uh, My wife is a great image bearer when it comes to establishing order. She has lists upon lists that help her maintain order. She's rubbed off on me. I love order. When things are out of place, I'm ill at ease. When our schedule's in chaos, and that never happens when she's around. It's only when she's traveling that our house is in disarray. When our schedule's in chaos, I have a tough time being at peace. If it's in chaos, I'm on edge. So part of Striving for peace is striving to find and maintain order in our daily lives. And maybe you're thinking, Dan, that's not very spiritual. You're right, it's not. I think sometimes we rush to the spiritual, to those kind of applications. But we're not just disembodied spirits. We're incarnate. We're in flesh. That's the way God created us. So that the physical has an impact 
on us, spiritually, emotionally, in other ways. If we're struggling for peace, maybe it's because we're living in chaos. And we need to create order. But order just doesn't apply to our households and our schedules. It applies to our priorities, too. Seek first his kingdom, we're commanded. When our priorities aren't in line, I can guarantee there'll be a lack of peace. When we put career ahead of family, when we put others behind self, self ahead of others as priority, we won't experience peace, we'll experience guilt or shame. Order means having your priorities in order, and it certainly means having our loves in order. St. Augustine, in his classic work, The Confessions, explained that sin, in its essence, is disordered love. Loving something more than God. Loving self more than others. Sin is disordered love. And nothing will mar your attempts to experience God's peace than willful, unrepentant sin. Disordered love. So to experience God's peace, we need to strive for order. Ordered priorities, ordered loves, and yes, just plain old simple order instead of chaos in our lives. Second, we need to remember who God is and that we aren't him. Remember who God is. He's the one on the throne, and I'm not him. The best way I have found to remind myself of that is through prayer. In prayer, I take things to God and say, God, I know I am not in control of this, but you are. I know I can't change this, but you can. You're on the throne. I'm not. And in prayer, I submit my plans to God and to his will and say, not my plans be done, but yours. This week I watched a, a short video by John Cleese, exp- the comedian, exp- explaining what comedy does. And he told a simple little joke. He said, how do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. You know what my plans were in college? Anything but ministry. I grew up in a pastor's home, and it was anything but that. You know, I, peace just in my life disintegrates. When I try to put my plans on my shoulders and make them happen. But in prayer, I submit them to the Lord. In prayer, I'm open to the Spirit. Paul says in Romans that the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And in prayer, 
I can ask God to provide peace. Jesus says in John 14, My peace I give you. Peace I leave with you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. I give you peace. So in prayer, I go to God and I say, God, grant me that peace. I'm asking, you like to give good gifts to your children, so please give me this gift of peace. So are we anxious? Are we struggling for peace? Maybe that's the opportunity to be even more prayerful. Uh, To recognize who God is and that we aren't him through prayer. The third strategy is to preach the good news to ourselves constantly. Remind ourselves that we are at peace with God because Christ stepped in and fulfilled all of the law's demands and took all of my sin and made peace with God so that I can be called a saint, a holy one, one who as is at peace with God. A good deal of my anxiety, a good deal of my lack of peace comes from listening to, stick with me here for a second, the stick in the mud Jesus that chirps in my ear. This past week, Josiah gave an incredible, just a great staff devotional at our staff meeting. He showed a clip which is fairly irreverent, but it's designed by a church to expose the kind of things people assume Jesus says. Those are the kind of things I hear Jesus saying in my ear all the time. Oh, Dan, how could you? I know what you thought. I know what you said under your breath that no one else heard. I know that gesture you made when the camel guy cut in front of you. You'd have to see the video to understand that. I know. Dan, I'm disappointed. Dan, you're supposed to be better than that. Dan. When I listen to that self-speak that masquerades as Jesus, my peace evaporates. So I need to preach the gospel to myself daily. Tell that inner voice to shut up, to drown it out with the words of the gospel. Words of absolution. Dan, your sins are forgiven. Dan, you don't have to perform. Keep the law. I did it. Dan, I love you. Dan, you're forgiven. Dan, you're accepted. When I preach the gospel to myself, I can rest. Cease from my striving and enjoy the peace that God has provided in Christ. So seek order. Remind yourself of who God is and that you're not him. And preach the gospel to yourself. 
three strategies to fight for peace. Because peace isn't easy. Once you lay hold of peace, hang on to it. Remind yourself that God is reigning from heaven on high, working all things according to his plan. That he has good will in mind for you, as evident especially in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to experience his peace. Will you this Christmas allow yourself to experience it? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that you continue to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. You establish peace. You did it in the most miraculous way I can imagine, by taking on flesh and blood so that you could shed that blood, so that the flesh could be broken, so that sins could be atoned for, so that law could be kept, so that things in heaven and on earth Things in my life and things in my family, things in the church, things all over the world could be reconciled to you. Father, help us to experience that peace in deep, meaningful, profound ways, especially this season. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.